Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. Hey, it's Toby, your Alphalist podcast host. And today I want to talk about something we all care about, our office setup. Did you know that IKEA is not only for home, but also for business? I still remember my very first IKEA purchase as an entrepreneur. My co-founder Philip Westermeyer and I physically visited IKEA Hamburg to buy the cheapest available desk for our very first office. Have you considered how your office styling and furniture impacts your team's productivity and happiness? IKEA offers products and services specifically for business. They are your one-stop shop for everything from office chairs and desks to flexible meeting rooms and modern comfortable lounges, no matter how small or large your business is. In addition to products for business, IKEA also offers the right services. A personal contact, convenient ordering by phone or email, professional advice, interior design services where complete room concepts are planned, and of course, a delivery and installation service. IKEA makes corporate shopping as convenient as possible, and with IKEA, companies save time and money. How? Go to ikea.de slash alphalist and check out IKEA's partner portal. In the portal, you can discover customized workplace solutions for your employees so that their individual needs can be fulfilled. You can simply create your own online shop for your company where you can predefine a product range that suits your company's budget. Each team member can choose their individual workplace solutions from your self-created shop according to their assigned budget. Thus, optimize productivity, connection and satisfaction for your employees. Start now and transform your business. Check out ikea.de slash alphalist. Welcome to the Alphalist Podcast. I am your host, Toby. And uh, today with me, I have Will Larson. And Will, you must be very relaxed for multiple reasons. Like, can you, can you, can you tell us why and, and, and a bit more about yourself? <laughs> <clears throat> hey, Toby. So I, I don't know if I'm, I'm that relaxed. So um, I guess th theoretically I'd be relaxed because I, I, I'm not, I'm not like in a, a full-time job. I, I recently um, finished my time at Calm. Um, but I sort of, you know, just got caught up in the sway of like a, a really, really pretty exciting opportunity. So I'll actually be starting there in, in about four weeks. And, and I also thought I was going to have like a, a long break between uh, kind of leaving and deciding what to do next. So I, I'm also working on kind of the, the third book. So 
I think theoretically I'm supposed to be relaxed, but in practice I found that I actually have a, a lot going on and I'm getting kind of busier every every day than the day before. Okay, okay. So um, you you essentially just exited from Calm, which is a meditation app. Uh, that was also why I why I thought you you maybe even more relaxed than like the typical CTO. Uh, and, and Calm is like, I think over like 200 million in funding and, and kind of a crazy, crazy ride, I guess. Right. Um, was it? So, so Calm is sort of like a broad toolkit. I think most people think of Calm as like a, a meditation app. In practice, most users come to Calm actually around sleep and how can I sleep better? And when you really look at the most common challenges with like mental wellness, like sleep is kind of the, at the forefront. Um, you know, maybe one in five people, you know, wants to have a meditation habit, but like everyone sleeps every night. And some people, you know, a lot of people sleep pretty poorly. Yeah. So, so Calm is really focused on, on both of those. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you will find me in, in your database as well. So I, 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 I tried as well. It, it went exactly for that reason. So. <laughs> and, and I think um to, to your point about the, the fundraising, I think Calm's raised a little bit less than you described, okay. like a little bit over a hundred okay. million, not, not, not at two though. I think really a pretty capital efficient business. I think um surprisingly effective um reach and, growth considering um, the amount of capital they've raised looking at, you know, like the before times before 2022, when funding was easy and kind of the revenue multiples were, were high. I think obviously we're in a totally new world in 2023 now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you write books, right? So I, I've written two books. I, I wrote my first one in 2019 with Stripe Press and Elegant Puzzle. And then I did my, my second one in, in 2021 and working on, on a third now with O'Reilly, which I'm, I'm super excited about and haven't shared a whole lot about that one yet. We'll, we'll have some, some more details coming over the next few months. But I think uh, a great way to share what you've learned, but I think an underrated and powerful way to learn yourself, to just be forced to write down kind of your perspectives and, and everything yeah. you've like, worked through over the past few years. Yeah, yeah. Which you do in your books and and your blog, right? Um, but Yeah, there, there's a lot of connection between the blog and the books. I think the blog is almost like a, a drafting environment. And I think... Some people worry a lot about writing consistently good stuff. I just worry about taking down my thoughts and getting them out there. And then then when I come to write the next book, I look at all these things I've put together and, you know, maybe one out of 10 is really good. Nine out of 10 is kind of like, eh, like not, not, not quite as good, but you can just see like what I've been thinking over a given year or a given, you know, like job or, or whatnot. Okay. Maybe we start a little earlier. So I, I, I typically ask all my guests for their, their nerd path, like how, how, how they, they got into computing, why they like machines, why they like maybe not only machines, but also like human interaction and, and what, what, what they like about it. And, and maybe we start with, with you, like when, when did you get into computing and why? I think there, there's so many kind of like, What, what is computing, <clears throat> what is computing adjacent? But for, for me, you know, obviously as like a very young kid and, and I have a almost three-year-old now, so I get to see him kind of coming in, like what, what he's enjoying, like what he's playing with. But for me, you know, Legos, and this was, you know, Legos before there were mind storms, before you could program Legos, you just had to build, build things with your hands. But it's kind of like the, the foundational toy for me growing up as a kid. And then I think, 
around the time I was six or seven, we, we got a very early like Apple, like an Apple 2C or, or something. It was not a, a beautiful machine by kind of a modern standard, but it was in the house. And, you know, I think my father used it for works work and I, I used it for like uh, kid picks or, or like whatever, like the, the one kind of kid oriented uh, piece of software on it was. But that was that was really eye opening to just see like what, what you could do there, e- even with very, very few tools on it. Kind of a little bit later, I think in um, in high school, I spent a lot of time playing something called like a, a multi-user dungeon, which is basically a text-based game. But a key part of it is you could write these triggers, which are essentially um, a very simple programming mechanism for if a certain event happens, you have to parse out the text, match it with a regular expression, and then have some sort of reaction to it. So that was a little bit more kind of concrete then certainly when I went to college, I studied computer science and got a little bit more into it there. And in terms of the um, the people element, I think like like a lot of folks coming into the software engineering, I, I loved writing software. And I think that that's still in a lot of ways, like the most fun I've ever had and ever have. But the actual problems that, that I ran into that I wanted to help address for the companies I worked at were very rarely at their core um, technology problems. They were really the intersections of technology and, and people kind of working together. And so to me, just necessarily to go after these problems that I really wanted to solve, found myself drawn more and more to the kind of people and technology intersection rather than the pure technology one. Um, and, and what was the last piece of software that you wrote? Do you still remember that or...? Ooh, good, good question. So I made like a small number of commits at Stripe to kind of non-core functionality, but at Uber, I did, I did actually write like a fair amount of, of software. I think uh, I recently, literally uh, in the last four months, got a ping from, from someone I worked with at, at Uber that a core piece of software I wrote was deprecated literally in the last three months. And so that that's... um like seven months after I, or seven years after I left Uber. And it was actually an interesting piece of software. So one of my sort of like personal theories is that you can tell basically who joins companies by which pieces of software they adopt. Particularly early on, you'd see people leave a company then adopt pieces of software that were only used at that previous company. And so at Dig, they wrote this piece of software called, called Clusto. And Clusto is basically a server um, metadata store. You could kind of think of it like a, a console today, but it was centralized and it was built in like, you know, like t- 20, 2010, 2011. So it wasn't super sophisticated by some by some means. But Uber actually adopted Clusto because we hired um, an engineer from, from Dig who, who decided to spin it up. And they had to write um, a bridge between that uh, cluster store and a new kind of key value store, which I called Bearing Straight, which I thought was very clever at the time. Uh, but Bearing Straight was finally deprecated uh, a couple months ago. So, so that was probably the last um, critical piece of infrastructure that I Okay. And, and they were celebrating that and telling you, like, finally, we got rid of your software or what? <laughs> <laughs> well, well it, yeah, I mean, so so the funny thing is, like, Clusto, even when I left um, Uber, like, seven plus years ago, that was already deprecated. So that was supposed to be, like, gone, you know, like, any time. And so they finally uh, got rid of it entirely, which is what that meant to me. It was like, this is fantastic. They're 
they're done. <laughs> they're done getting off the system. You know, seven seven years yeah. later. Is that is that a bad sign for their tech debt strategy, or you think it, it it's normal? It's a good question. I, I I haven't dug into like the exact kind of usage of Clusto at Uber in, in some time, but my, my assumption is there were probably like seven servers that depended on it or something for the last okay. few years, and they just never quite got around to fully deprecating it. Like I, I highly doubt it was actually in a kind of load-bearing role for the most part, and I think they just never finished it. You know, I, I do think finishing migrations very valuable, and so probably it would have been you know handy to finish it earlier. But w without without the details, I, I'm hesitant to try to say they were doing the right or 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 the wrong thing. Okay, okay. Um, I think in your blog you also wrote about migrations and and how to handle them perfectly. Um, so um, like people just just look at his blog afterwards. Like there's like lots of of, of beefy content. Um, uh, today we wanted to talk about CTO careers, um, and um, maybe we start before we start with that. Um, I wanted to ask you like if a few things about 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 calm and, and meditation and, and work life balance because I, I think it it kind of hits the right spot because like I recently think that like the world is like even starting to turn much faster right now, um, and and it. Like it, it started off with 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 the remote first world, uh, which which you kind of know well, and then um, right now with with AI being around or being more more present, let's say um, it, it kind of seems to get more hectic. Like, how do you personally, also with having a three year old kid, manage your work life balance? <clears throat> So, so first, I think that the real the real thing that has changed our lives is like personal phones and having the phone on us at all times. Then um, the, the focus on chat and just the assumption that you'll be available when you get DM'd on Slack at 9 p.m. or, or, or whatnot. And that to me is the thing that has really accelerated um, just the quote unquote work life integration between kind of between our, our lives and our work and the kind of baseline assumption of availability at all at all times. And I think something that I really found like one of my favorite parts of Calm is this kind of baseline recognition about um, the importance um, and relationship between mental wellness and productivity. And there is by simply letting people detach and, and rest, like real evidence that this helps people get more productive in, in their work. And another kind of, like, I think, subtle advantage of a company like Calm is there are companies like Calm that have control over their um, over their timelines. And I think Strike's a good counterexample of a company that did not have control over its timelines. And so, so what do I mean? Calm didn't have too many third-party dependencies, mm -hmm. and most of them were relatively straightforward. And most of them were as a um, as like a, a consumer of an API or something. Stripe, if you think about it, there are financial regulators in every single country that they work with that change the laws, you know, wh whenever they want to, like semi-frequently. Semi there are industry trends that directly impact Stripe. I think that the crypto shift over the last like handful of years directly impacted Stripe, even though they're not, you know, fundamentally a crypto company, they do have crypto components to the portfolio. Stripe has banking partners. Um, Stripe has federal regulators that are very focused on fraud, on payments. Payments is a 
sort of fundamental issue for most countries because the ability to control and observe payments is like fundamental to actually detecting fraud, um, criminal activity, and so on. And so if you take all of those together, a company like Stripe has so many people um, demanding they change things all the time that they, they almost lose control of their, their schedule to a certain extent. A company like Calm, much simpler to plan, much simpler to own your timelines, much simpler to pick what, what you're actually going to work on. And that, you know, that was, that was delightful. We obviously need both types of companies, right? Like we can't, n- not all companies can simply be um, blissful. And, and being in um, the direct consumer market, competing with other companies working in that space, not always blissful either. There's a lot of competition there. Um, but but that, that was part of what made it such like a, an interesting place is you could actually focus, you could actually pick where your energy went, not just have it kind of show up for you. I do think, though, to your point about kind of um, ML, AI, I think before that, the, the crypto kind of hype cycle, the, the world is moving pretty quickly. And there's a lot of people who are incentivized on kind of various platforms to make you feel like the world is moving even faster. And so there's, you know, a, a, people who want you to feel like the fear of missing out about each new thing to pull you into their content system, to pull you into their funds to pull you into like what, whatever, whatever they want from you. It can be hard to tell what's, what's real because there are also people who are trying to convince you not to care, to pull you into their kind of content universe to, to their, their fund. Um, and so th- there's a lot of people competing for your attention. And I think to me, what, what I've really worked on is first um, improving my information diet where I spend a lot less time on social media. Mm-hmm. I spend relatively not active on most sorts of social media. I I do, I do post my content there. I do engage a bit. I I do, I do read a bit of what other people put in, but I try not to engage a whole lot. I try not to get my identity or kind of my self-worth caught up in these platforms because these platforms are ultimately like not, not that healthy for, for us. And to me that, that just in general of kind of recognizing the hype cycle people's incentives in it. It's not real. I mean, they're talking about things that are real, like the ML um, kind of infrastructure that's coming online. That's real. But the way people are engaging with it on social media, etc., that, that, that's not real. That's just people engaging with it with um, kind of various sets of incentives they have to kind of get excited, to get other people excited, to get people angry, to get people mad. And I try not, I try not to worry about that too much because I, I don't think it's actually about helping us. I think it's about um, engaging us to get people to consume other people's content. So that being said, ignoring um, th- this kind of like influencer kind of aspect of social media is technology actually speeding up. And that to me is kind of the underlying question that I've been thinking about. And I would say the last three or four years have been just incredibly dense with change. And so there, there's the shift to remote work, which is like potentially coming back a little bit, but the pandemic has really driven people out of the mm-hmm. office and out of kind of the, the core tech centers. Um, as, as I was talking with companies a little bit in, in the, the search that I was doing recently for, for my next role, people who are not in core hubs, at least in the, this is a U.S. market specific uh, mm-hmm. point of view, but People outside of San Francisco and New York are finding fewer roles than they did um, two years mm-hmm. ago for executive roles. So people are really getting kind of pulled back into the historical hubs. Mm-hmm. 
so this, this doesn't fit the narrative, right? Like the narrative is like work from anywhere. You can get the jobs you want at any place, but the, the narrative and then reality are, are kind of at, at odds a little bit. <clears throat> but it's not just the pandemic, right? It's not just remote work. The, the funding environment has radically changed in the last 18 months where getting series, B, series B's uh, fundraises has been incredibly challenging recently relative to a couple of years ago. Um, the AI, the crypto. Um, so, so there is a ton of stuff changing. And I think to me, the, the key thing as like a technical leader is just keeping both ideas alive in your head that um, maybe this is really, really important. Um, and we can't just ignore things because it might be hype. And then it's probably hype. <laughs> so just remembering both um, is, I think, the most important thing for us as, as technical leaders to keep in mind. But 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 sometimes like, hype is also there for a reason, right? I mean, with with GPT, like really uh, showing its its real face recently. I mean, it's there for a while already, right? And it it, it was kind of always always there and and, and kind of. Not, not very exciting for people, but then finally having it like an interface and 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 also like um, a few more um, ideas coming to reality, it, it kind of is showing the real its its real face and and yeah, for me it's uh, like exciting, uh, a bit scary. Um, what 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 it what 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 really like AI can do, um, and it was always clear like that this happens in long term but now it's really like kind of there was this 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 tipping point right so my my personal hypothesis is that the impact of ai in the very new future will be a little bit less extreme than people yeah. think so my my belief is that the biggest opportunity for these sorts of tools is to make internal operations at companies significantly more efficient and so um, kind of an unstated reality of, of most companies is that most technology companies, most modern technology companies is that you have this piece of technology and then you say like it, it's done by this amazing piece of technology. But behind that, like behind behind like the, the thin wall is a team of like a thousand or, or 10,000 humans doing much of the quote unquote technologies work for it. And so I think um, this this next step in, in AI should make it easier and cheaper to do a lot of the work that's been actually secretly handed off to um, humans to do without acknowledging them. But the funding cycle we're just coming out of was so free with money that most of the companies that needed that number of people to actually run their product could have gotten sufficient funding to, to hire them. So theoretically, if there were opportunities that weren't possible because the cost of running them was too high. Most of those would have gotten funded anyway. It's sort of my like working mm -hmm. hypothesis mm -hmm. in the last environment. Certainly today they, they wouldn't be funded, mm -hmm. but that's like my theory that the ideas would have been tested anyway, just at like great, great capital expense. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll find out if that's true or not. And I do think there will be new ideas, but I, I'm not sure we've seen the new ones, but I think, you know, a little bit like, um, like Wasm and like the move to kind of like more powerful applications in the browser, <laughs> you see like Figma, like Figma took advantage of that, but you don't see a ton of other things that really took advantage of kind of Wasm, like sure. the fast sure, kind sure. of browser. Yeah. This will be the AI will be a bit of the same. Yeah, but, but, but well, um, I, I don't know if I agree because like right now, like every single company is is thinking about like how to apply it, right? That wasn't the case with Wasm, right? Um, it, it was crazy and like new technology and, and kind of ex ex exciting, but there it's uh, like the, 
the 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 application now gets so easy that um, this will really change things. But I, I think for good. Like I'm 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 like thinking about it very in a very positive way. I just just think that um, yeah, it will it will change things. It will move things, and then like um like let's say one one to two years ago. Uh, having AI in a pitch deck for for VC based uh, for a VC uh, funded company or a company aiming for VC funding was kind of uh, a trick to, uh, to to get more money in and was never real or in very rare occasions occasions it was real and now it finally is real right it's it's nothing special anymore that's that's what 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 I kind of kind of like about it um, and 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 it gets gets applicable. Um, so let's see, <laughs> but well, we're not here to 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 talk about like uh, AI and, and depth or something or why we all are afraid of ChatGPT or not. Um, we wanted to talk about um, tips for for CTOs um, for their careers, uh, like leaving the the current job and, and why leave and and finding the new one as as you just did. I thought I thought it's kind of kind of a very nice nice challenge to 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 tackle here. Um, so maybe we start early, like wh why did you become a CTO in the first, in first place? Like, because you, you liked working with people and the challenge between human and, 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 and machine interaction, um, as I understood, is that correct or? Yeah, I, I think that's basically right. Um, but fundamentally I, I just, I like solving problems. And so to me, like the, the joy of kind of coming to work is like solving problems that confront like you, your, your business, your team. And just most of the most interesting problems, I think, in engineering are, are these hybrid problems between people's incentives, um, the, the team that you've hired, the, the way you've structured it, the priorities that you're balancing, and the technology. I think there's very few problems that are purely technology problems. It's always the intersection of, you know, time to market, um, the, the competitive set and what they're doing and technology that, that brings you to the interesting problems and the ability to, to solve them. And um, I, I guess at Calm you had like quite a lot of challenges uh, to, to 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 tackle. Why should one leave and out of such like a comfortable situation, um, having like a well-paid job as CTO, managing I don't know how many people, but like must be a bigger tech team. Why why, why did you leave in the first place? So Calm, I, I don't I actually think Calm has like relatively few problems compared to to most you know kind of leadership roles you find in engineering. I think amazing brand. I think that the leading product, um, the business is growing at a healthy rate. Um, it, it's it's a phenomenal team. Like one of the the best teams that I've gotten to to work with. Um, to me, that's actually sort of the, the, the challenge for, for me is like what, what I really like is seeing new problems. I like seeing things kind of break in new ways and then working together with folks to fix it. And so to me, it's actually, you know, my problem with Calm was essentially that it didn't have enough problems and sort of that that's like what I thrive on is just having new things and, and new problems to work on. So I actually think um, it, it's, you know, it's a great business. It's doing really well, but it's not generating problems at the the pace that that I really want to be finding new problems to work on and and so I was really was focused on finding something where 
the number of problems and then like the degree of difficulty of those problems was was a little bit higher so that there'd be kind of enough um, meat to keep getting excited about. For me, as I you know have been working a little bit longer in the industry, I keep looking for bigger and, and different types of problems where, you know, certainly I think um, a ton of learn, a ton to learn at Calm. I, I learned a tremendous amount there, but now kind of looking for the, the next set of problems to sink my teeth into. Okay, okay. Um, and at a certain point, you just made the decision to leave and then you left or like, how, how did that work practically? And what would you recommend <laughs> of doing like to other like engineering leaders and CTOs? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first thing before you think about leaving is sort of thinking about transition and succession planning, right? So I think I recommend to every engineering leader to think about if you leave, who, who would step into what roles? How, how would things actually work? And just think about that for, you know, an hour, two hours a month. And just think about, are you getting people aligned to be successful? And so, for, for example, a lot of times your, your leadership in engineering might not have much of a relationship with the executive team. But if you want one of those folks to actually step in um, after you depart, if they don't have like a, a strong relationship with your peers um, on the executive team, they're, they're not going to be able to do that because the executive team is going to want someone they, they know. Or, or they're more likely to pick like a stranger from the outside who has kind of the experiences that they, they think they, they want. And so I think there's a lot about just making sure you have that succession plan and you have set it up to potentially succeed. You know, one of the open secrets is like when you give notice, when you leave a job, you don't get to pick your successor. Like you're, you're no longer making the choices. Like you've lost the right to pick who succeeds you because you've decided to, to move on. But if you set things up well, um, you can often, you know, at least make people consider um, the, the successor or the plan that, that you think makes sense. In terms of de deciding to leave, <clears throat> so, so for most jobs I've left, it's been more of an ongoing conversation where, if, you know, talking about what you're trying to get to and then what, um, where the company is. I think often you and your manager can kind of come, come to a, a reasonable fit. And that, that was sort of the case with Calm, where I was talking with our, our CEO for, you know, a handful of months and just trying to figure out like, how how do we kind of get the right thing for the company, for, for the team, um, but but also for me, based on like kind of looking for a new set of challenges and were those there? Um, you don't want to like break things just so you have like a new set of problems to work on. You want things to work well. And so I think um, working with David, our CEO, that, that's sort of already netted out to over a couple of months of kind of like talking it through. But it was like very, very incremental, um, very kind of you know, thoughtful partnership on getting to the decision there together. And I think to me, really, you know, recent blog post on this topic um, handful of questions for folks to think about. It's, you know, has your rate of learning decreased? Or do you feel de-energized? Um, do you feel like it would be damaging to more damaging to leave later than now? Um, to me, it was really about the rate of learning. And again, like not seeing different shapes of problems. And I think we had done a really great job of solving or bringing a solution to the problems that we've been focused on. Um, and I wanted to see a, a new set of challenges. Okay. I understood. And And like, I don't know how, how deeply you want to talk about your own things, but like, it, it, it seemed to be well prepared. So most likely, like, as you, you quit yourself, so there's no like, I don't know, exit package, most likely kind of 
you you it's like discussion like do I keep my equity or not or like what 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 do you think is is, is relevant and in, in terms of like looking at at, at labor um and, and how to leave yeah I mean the, these things are so um context specific but like generally what I'd say is that there's two kind of common situations here one common situation is you have like the next job already lined up and you're like hey like I'm leaving in two or three weeks. I'm starting, you know, as CTO at, at wherever. And in, the, in these cases, like, it's pretty hard to get any sort of, like, package out of it because you're, like, not really doing much to support the transition, right? Like, any sort of exit package is a reward um, or a compensation in turn for supporting the exit as thoughtfully as you possibly can. And so when you already have a job lined up and you're doing very little to support the transition, you're pretty unlikely to get any sort of like exit package out of it. Um, but, you know, there's a different scenario where you're like, you agree to say, help evaluate candidates coming in for, for three months or something where there, there's like room to kind of negotiate that. Um, on the other hand, I think when you don't have a timeline um, for like the next role set up, um, you, you can like run like a, a slower exit. And in that case, I think it's just about you negotiating with like the CEO or, or, or the whomever, like the, like the appropriate amount of compensation based on like how valuable it is to them to have you like support that. And so in this departure, it was like a little bit slower um, based on kind of alignment with the CEO on like how we wanted to structure that. And like on average, I think you have more more leverage to to get some sort of like little exit package um, based on that. Of course, um, you know some people also negotiate kind of severance agreements or departure agreements um, when they accept the job, and so there there is that component as well. And it just sort of depends on the the size of company, the the style, and so on, whether or not like, you, those are negotiable. But certainly in that case, you'd have like a slightly different scenario too. Okay, and 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 then. You transition out, and like you decided to 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 count down for a while, or like initially, or I mean, you you said you have like another job lined up in in a month, so um, it, it doesn't seem to be like so relaxed there, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. So my initial plan was to take like you know three to six months yeah. out, um, working, want to finish this next book, um, and was just hoping to not not really do a whole lot other than write. And then I have like a few kind of software projects that, that I wanted to spend some more time so on. Back, back to programming or? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that that is, I mean, at its core, I think programming is like a very rewarding yeah, like absolutely. hobby or, or, or profession, yeah. right? Particularly with no like um, OKRs or like metrics to account, just like kind of the, the fun of creation. Um, but I think what happens and happens a lot is that you just hear about an opportunity and you're kind of like, mm, that's actually a pretty good opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I spent um, a fair amount of time like journaling essentially to think about like what, what does the perfect opportunity for, for me look like? And it's like pretty specific. And so I think sort of like, unfortunately, or sort of fortunately that this opportunity came up that was sort of like perfectly in line with what I was looking for. And so I just, I just like couldn't really think of a way that it made sense to to not do it. It just it just fit a bit perfectly into all the dimensions. And 
theoretically, there probably will be other opportunities. Like if you if you wait for like another six months or or twelve months, that probably something else that fits them wraps up. But like it not, not there's no guarantee on these things, right? Like it, it might happen, but it might it might not. And so um, at at the core, like I, I do enjoy the work. I do think the work that that we do is is, is like meaningful and like is meaningful not just for ourselves. But actually, like meaningful for for society, and so I, 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 to me, just couldn't couldn't quite say no. Even though, like, there's something very pleasant about just resting. There, there's also something really rewarding about doing meaningful work, and this was sort of the perfect situation mm-hmm. for me. And um, is there anything you would say is is uh, did particular change about the job market for CDOs uh, in the year 2023? Like, uh, as like I don't know, funding. Uh, is kind of no longer that crazy? Is it is it harder to find a new role? Or like, what what is your perspective on that? So I spoke with a bunch of um, people going through their own job searches, and then I spoke with um, you know a bunch of executive recruiters, just that people people that I've met over the last you know like 10, 15 years. So my general sense is like a couple of trends. So first, like much easier to get hired in San Francisco or New York City, again, in the U.S. markets than most other places. Like there's a return to kind of the the core hubs of kind of like yesteryear. People trying to get hired into, you know, senior most jobs and other places are are seeing just fewer opportunities than, than they did a few years ago. Two, The Series B um, funding round is is very challenging. It's far fewer companies are getting to Series B right now. And so there there are companies that are just like running, running out of money. And so often for a lot of folks who think of themselves as like a late stage Series A or a Series B, you know, executive, like these jobs just basically don't exist right now. And if you're a, you know, quote unquote, late stage Series A, you know, whatever that means. But let's say that you raised um, $10 million and, and you're really trying to get to the Series B because you're running, you only have six months of runway. Hiring an expensive exec at that point is like pretty painful. It's also like hard to take that job when you know the runway is, you know, like four months. Right? It's just like a little bit high, high risk for you as well. And, and so, so, so you get more, all more the different it's just like a slow market. Like, is it the case or? Better salary or what? Well, better salary is not good, right? <laughs> well, I mean, well, desperate people will kind of give you anything you ask for, but it won't necessarily help you yeah. or help them. And the, the problem is, um, they, they could still just not exist in in six months if they if they don't get the funding, or exist but at a greatly reduced scope, where they're effectively like a seed company again from like a, a size and like staffing perspective. In which case you're probably not the right CTO for them. If you thought they were the right CTO for them at like 50 engineers, you're probably not the right CTO for them at like four engineers. It's just like a very different kind of, kind of skill set. But yeah, it's it's a slow market out there is I think the biggest thing I'd say. I think people who have a job they feel good at are, aren't, aren't looking for as many things. There aren't as many things to find. And that's true on also kind of the later stages where there's just a lot of companies that are just kind of taking it slow at this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, particularly those that depended on funding to drive growth, they just aren't able to see the same growth numbers right now. So again, 
um, layoffs, a, a little bit less focus on hiring senior talent. Mm -hmm. and, and your next gig is it? Is it like in which 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 stage is it? Uh, I, I won't I won't go into too yeah. much detail on the yeah. next one. I'll sure. kind of you know share more one, once once I've, yeah, I've started. But it, it's it's a little bit later. It's not it's not um, it's not like a super early one by any by any means. Okay, okay. So no no longer dependent on on, on funding rounds, most likely. So <laughs> looking forward to that. And 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 then um, I guess at that stage um, it's it's just normal, right? Like normal salary nego negotiations, normal normal equity negotiations, stuff like that. Or like, is it just what what you've been used to before? Or I think um. So, so I think the biggest change in kind of later stage companies is I think there are more and more different um, equity vehicles that are used. And so as some of these companies are remaining, um, as some of these companies are remaining private for, you know, 10, 11, 12 years, they just end up in like really complicated spots with expiring options, expiring restricted stock units. Are they offering double trigger RSUs, single trigger RSUs? Um, there's just like so many different pieces that I, I think to me, um, the complexity of particularly senior roles at companies that are n not new, but are still private is how do you actually um, maximize your opportunity to, to see any of your equity? Mm -hmm. And so without sharing any insider knowledge, you can look at like Stripe recently did like a $6 billion or a $6.5 billion funding round. Um, and what they've stated publicly is that is focused on um, paying taxes for for their employees to allow them to exercise or to sell or or whatnot some of their options. And th there there are more companies beyond Stripe who are kind of dealing with this um, dimension right now. It's not not as many people who are getting written about it at that at that mm. size as as Stripe. But it's just um, pretty complex, and you have to like think through a lot of scenarios about like where the company you join will be at various moments and are they likely to go public in a world where relatively few companies are going public until you know until the gates open again as people will say but who knows what that means until until you actually see it it could be could be next year uh could be three years from now yeah. i mean some companies also start offering like a um a, a, a private market for their own shares right so they offer you like share buyback if you if you want to leave or stuff like that um so absolutely, and this is where it gets complicated. So, for example, um, thinking through three different scenarios. So, many companies, particularly those that are like say a Series B or, or before, will offer you stock options, and so you join and you have options. And so, options are pretty easy to do with a tender offer. To, to your point, where you could have a, a private secondary tender offer, or let people sell. This is somewhat common for companies that have been around for a while. Then they typically hit a valuation where um, it's just not plausible for their employees to exercise the mm -hmm. option. So let's say they hit $10 billion valuation. All of a sudden, as a senior engineer coming in with a $600,000 $600, um, equity grant over, over four years, but if you wanted to exercise that, you'd have to find, you know, um, you know couple hundred thousand, you know, maybe, maybe $600,000 to, to exercise it, depending on the details of the 409A and so on. And then you get taxed on it if, um, if it had grown in value since then. So either, 
either you have to like pay a ton of money to exercise it if you exercise it at the um the four hundred nine a that when you join, um, or you it's cheaper to exercise, but it's grown and then you get taxed on on the growth. These are these are not really plausible for for most employees. I mean, they're not plausible for most for most people. And so many companies move to restricted stock um, units, which don't have that. It's basically you get them um, as if they were income. They get taxed as income whenever they have these two triggers. So double trigger RSUs, there's a, a vesting component on duration, and there's like a liquidity event um, component. But you can't you can't make RSUs. Um, double trigger RSUs can only be sold if there's a liquidity event. And so you look at... Um, and they expire in seven years. So there's many companies out there who have this problem um, that that is like why Stripe had to raise so much mm-hmm. money where either you let the RSUs expire and your employees or ex-employees are upset mm-hmm. or you have to raise enough money to um, convert them from double trigger to single trigger, which means you'll get taxed on all of those um, immediately, which, which is which is pretty painful, particularly for a company with a valuation like Stripe's. So you see more companies that are converting to single trigger if they've been, you know, private for 10 plus years and are doing pretty well. But but there's a ton of tax complications there. So I, I do think um, in the U.S. market anyway, figuring out how you're going to actually get access to your equity in these different scenarios is the hardest part of, of the negotiation. So understanding what is what what, what makes sense for you or. So. um how do you know if if uh like the the domain of of your new company is is, is gonna gonna suit you well like i i think you you mentioned that you you're writing like some sort of an, an uh, a longer text i guess around what what suits you and what 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 is good for you um is that the only thing you do or like how how deep do you go into into the um into the guts of 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 your next job before you start or before you accept it? <laughs> so, so to me, I think there's like kind of two core components of um, digging into the company. And there's like, how do, how do the teams work? What are the actual kind of like experiences you get interacting with the people? Like, are these going to be people you enjoy working with? And these are kind of the organizational domain of, of, of the work you're going to do. And kind of like, what are the friction points? Like there's always functions that are upset with each other to some extent or are not working together as well as, as they could be, um, you know, infrastructure and product engineering, marketing and product engineering, product and design. There's, there's always going to be some friction points. And so you're just trying to figure out what, what are the friction points for this role? And like, do, do you think you can like help make progress with them? Then on the other hand, there, there is just like the, the technical domain um, of like the specific technology and the problems and like the, the product itself. And I think, you know, f- for example, a lot of people are like, hey, the most interesting problems are distributed systems problems. And pe- people love to, to like bring a distributed systems problem to kind of anything and make it more complicated. But there's also a lot of products out there that are not quote unquote high scale or high volume, but are very, very um, precise and correctness is incredibly important and like inherently complex. And one of the, th- I mean, the most interesting thing about Stripe is Stripe is like a slight hybrid of that. It's mostly a very complex problem where precision and accuracy is important, 
but there's like a little bit of scale there. there there's like a decent amount of stuff happening. Mm-hmm. It's not like a, it's not just running on like one computer somewhere. Mm-hmm. They're doing they're doing some load. Whereas like Uber, for example, um, very high load, um, very distributed. The, the complexity of what was happening was like relatively small, though. Right, it was just the, the load yeah. Yeah. That, that was high. So to me, um, it's like understanding where where the challenges are inherently to the domain. And is it is it like a domain that's changing quickly and that has um, demanding users who, who want something precise about it? So... One of the things that I, I'm really excited about for the, the job I took is it's a place with, um, I'd call them like power users, where the users are very demanding about the, the product that we offer and really want it to work extremely well. A little bit different than like Calm, where we had you know millions of users, um, but they, they more wanted us to tell them like how to like build a meditation habit or mm-hmm. tell them how to build like a, a good sleep um, hygiene. Um, here, here's a place on the, the new product um, I'll be getting to work on where it's a little bit more that there's like strong beliefs about how it should work from from the users and kind of the, the relationship there. And so to me, it's you can always find like the interesting parts of, of what of what is interesting and in, in, in a given job. And to me, the um, things I'm excited about that the place that I'm joining is just the the need for correctness precision in the software, which can be hard to do at, at in a rapidly you know, changing product, and two, just the sophistication of, of the users. And, and combined, that's something that I'm, I'm quite quite excited for. Isn't that like similar at Stripe that like the users also demand um, a lot uh, from 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 Stripe, um, like, especially like the power users, the advanced ones, or? I think that's true. I, I think that there's sort of like a couple different dimensions, though. I think there's um, so so you know Stripe has uh, self-service onboarding for small users. They come on. Some of those small users are incredibly demanding because they're doing, I would say, like unusual things. And so, for example, at one point, I don't know if that's true today um, anymore, but at one point there was a company selling like used cars on Stripe, and so this is like a very high like dollar value um item versus um you know most people are selling like a like an ebook or something like much much smaller and digital kind of item not like a physical one um but selling a car on stripe looks like fraud essentially right like you're like this is probably fraudulent this is a lot of money um you're a new user why who's buying this like twenty thousand dollar thing this is fraud it's not but it kind of looks like it and so I do think there there are kind of like the small users that are very demanding and like because they're just doing something you never imagined. And that that's actually great because it forces you to like grow the breadth and the capabilities of your product. There's also um, you know, Stripe's gone far upstream into the, the enterprise as well. And so they have like really demanding enterprise users who are demanding in like a totally different way. Demanding on pricing, demanding on availability, on security, um, d- demanding on like the country coverage and like different payment methods. And so just like a different style of demanding, I think valuable too, because this is, um, I mean, a lot of the revenue in Stripe and, you know, any, any scaled business is, is obviously in the enterprise segment. Mm-hmm. And what I like, if you, if you found like potential roles, what, what, what are like things you, you, you look at? I guess culture is also an important piece or? Yeah, I, I think culture, culture is, culture is such a broad idea. And I think people use it in a lot of different ways. I also think a lot of times people 
document who they wish they were rather yeah. than who they are. Yeah. So they're like, we love um, consensus and work-life balance. And then you like join and it's like <laughs> top down, like really rapid pace. And you're like, but the cultural values said. And so y- you can't, you have to listen to what they say, but you can't like trust what they say necessarily. You have to like dig a little bit to get, get to the bottom of it. And so to me, that that's really important. But I think if you talk to enough people, um, particularly if you talk to people who are, you know, not executives, like one of the great things about executives is that they're polished, they're complete, um, they're careful. But one of the challenges is like they, they won't really tell you the truth. Um, sometimes they'll like give you the best version of the truth, which is a little bit hard to like kind of parse. <laughs> I think talking to folks who aren't executives at a company is like super valuable to get like a real read of like what what is it like working there. But but also like, you know, I, I just think most companies you can find a way to like fit in, to like work well, to like be a good part of it. And, and I do think as long as you're adaptable and not really rigid, you can like usually find a way to be like happy um, and enjoy working at, at any company. Mm-hmm. And, and and apart from that like do you have other um let's say things you would you would you would put a red flag on um typically you you kind of are very sensitive about if you if you join if you if you join a new new job or a new company i think um so, so whenever you hire an executive there's usually something wrong And so, like, when you talk to, to people who have never gotten hired as an executive, they're often like, hey, but, like, here's this thing that, that seems wrong about the job. And you're like, that's why, that's why they're hiring someone to do the job, right? Like, if, if something wasn't going wrong, they probably wouldn't be hiring an executive. Um, so so there's, there's always going to be some mess, right? And, and I think often often like you should be most concerned when you can't find the mess like i think you talk to some companies where they're like actually everything's great and you're like that to me is more concerning than companies who are like hey like here are these four problems we're struggling with because every company has those four problems mm-hmm. you just like sometimes can't figure them out because no one will tell you what they are mm-hmm. until you join and kind of like struggle struggle through it a, a little bit so i, I think To me, what's really important is like, um, I think of this idea of like one of one jobs. So like most jobs, there's like a pipeline, a consistent process. You might hire like seven people as front end engineers this year, but executive jobs are just like, everyone's like totally unique. They're like, um, they're, they're custom, they're bespoke, they're artisanal. And so you just have to like figure out whether it's the right set of like problems and opportunities for you. I, I don't think. I don't think you can totally generalize on these and I don't even have any like g- great framework for deciding if, if the job's perfect for you. Cause I think depending on where you are, your career, what's important for you, um, you, you might want like really radically different things. But to me, it's try to just understand what's like really on tap for you and try to think about um, if this job went really well, does it get you in a place where you can do the next thing you want to do really well? Like, six years from now that, that you'll be excited about. So to me, that's the most important thing for me as someone who's still looking for like ongoing growth in, in their career. I also think there's people who I think are really talented who are just looking for to go do a job well, and they, they don't really care about having more career opportunity on the other side of it. They just want to go do good work. And that's what's important to them. And that's, that's fine too. You just have to like know yourself and, and what you're really focused on. Cool. Thanks a lot. So um, 
we slowly have to come to the end and and I, I still have I mean we spoke a bit about AI and and, 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 and things and, and and the stress of the world um, of, of today but what 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 like if you look a bit into the future I don't know if you can um, what what do you think are the biggest challenges ahead um, you, you see facing you see CTOs facing in the next uh, five to ten years going forward? So one of my like kind of controversial views is that I think the world we are in with highly compensated engineers is um, and, and engineering leadership is not necessarily permanent. I, I think there's like our, our profession is like pretty new, but there's a lot of factors that I think will make this profession smaller um, and perhaps like not as highly compensated as it is today. And I think, um, just like if you look at doctors or lawyers, I think doctors and lawyers are relatively not compensated as well today as they were um, 30 years ago. There's just a lot of forces that have made, I think, that the jobs um, less lucrative, but also potentially like less rewarding mm -hmm. um, in, in, in some ways as well. And I think technology has had a, a lot a lot to do with that mm -hmm. um, for, for certain. Mm -hmm. But I, I just think um, we should all be thoughtful that this is not necessarily like the permanent state of the profession, the profession is going to keep changing and, and that's okay. But if you look at some of the low code tools out there, you look at the, the AI pieces, I think it's, it's very likely that not this next generation, but the generation after that of, of companies are, are much smaller than they are today mm -hmm. um, is one kind of worldview. The other thing you have to hold in your head is that if you look at the burden of compliance um, the different privacy laws in every country, um, in every state in the United States, accessibility um, compliance, if you look at the kind of financial compliance. Well, on one hand, we have like all these technology vehicles that should be making it easier to run smaller businesses with fewer people. On the other hand, the, the burden of operating as an internet business is just getting higher and higher and higher. So it's, it's unclear which of these two forces is going to be like the, the prevailing one in the next decade. Because I, I think on one hand, technology could get so powerful that it's easy for small teams to do things that were impossible before. On the other hand, it's possible that um, regulation becomes so heavy that these small teams simply can't operate legally um, without getting crushed um, by by the, the, the weight of that regulation. And consequently, most innovation happens at larger companies who can who can afford to pay the the cost of compliance, risk management, and, and so on. So, to me, the interplay and the friction between those two ideas is going to be the the most interesting thing for for the next decade. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and and how to tell where we end up with right? Like, uh, what what the end game is? If there is an end game or yeah, if if it's if it's like the world is just no longer a place for, um, like many ideas that are around there right now, right? Um, I don't know. Um, so, um, I still have a little surprise for you as like kind of my my closing question. Um, so, um, the co CEO of 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 Calm kind of told me about like a secret Easter egg you you built into the into the latest version of the app before you left essentially, and it's the time machine feature. Um, 
when you tap the cover screen um, of, of of one of your 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 calm episode, um, like you have those, those episodes that you can download and, and listen to uh, for for sleeping, um, if, if you tap the cover. 42 times um it, it lets you travel back in time and you can like then enter like a year you want to travel to and 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 then um we 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 just do that now um i i have the calm up here in my hand and and i i hit it for 42 times and um we now travel back into the year 2011 when you started as director of engineering at the company dig which was quite popular back then um And we observed yourself for a while. You're still coding, like doing a lot of tech work and like uh, lots of different things. And, and now you have the chance to whisper something into young Will's ears. What, what would it be? So I'd say like uh, at my core, I'm not someone who like worries too much about optimizing the past, right? Like I, I think, I think <laughs> w what I've done over the last like decade is, is still is still work I'm proud of. And I think, you know, I learned, I learned what I learned the, the way that I learned it. Like, I don't know if I could have skipped to learning most of these lessons um, any other way. So, you know, I'm honestly like, pretty happy with how history has worked out for me. So I, I don't know if I'd want to risk, want to risk changing it. I, um, I, I, I have a uh, co previous coworker who I worked with who got a job offer from Dig and from Facebook. And so he, he would have joined Dig around the same time I did, but instead he, he, he went to Facebook, which was, you know, certainly a, a much more lucrative um, outcome for, for him. <laughs> And, you know, like there's all these ways you can kind of like play back history and convince yourself that you like made a mistake or something. But, you know, the, the advice I'd give to myself and to anyone else is like, who cares? Like they're, they're, the world's just so random. I mean, you can't, you can't spend much time worrying about kind of the particulars. You just have to worry about kind of living well in the moment you're in. That The, the past is defined by randomness. Yeah. You're, you're right. You're right. Uh, well, maybe you could give yourself some investment tips, but um, <laughs> who knows if it works out at the end, right? <laughs> so, well, was 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 really fun talking to you and, and I got a, a bunch of very cool tips from you. So thanks a lot for that. Um, and, and yeah, folks out there. Uh, maybe you wanna wanna read his new book or uh, his 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 current books. Um, maybe you wanna wanna want to brag a bit on, on your, on your blog or current content, like wh wh where, where can people find more about yourself? Yeah. So the, the best place to find stuff for me is, is just my website. It's uh, irrational exuberance is the blog or it's L E T H A I N.com. But if you search for Will Larson, you, you'll, you'll get, uh, you'll get there pretty, pretty quickly. And I think, you know, a bunch of stuff to read, but, I, you know, I, I don't worry about trying to sell my, my stuff too much. I, you know, hopefully it'll be useful to folks, but, <laughs> it um, is, it you know, is. I just want to be useful. I don't, I don't really, you know, want to push, push things. Too <laughs> It's very useful. I, I know your blog for years, so thanks a lot for your content and uh, yeah, looking forward to talk to you the next time. And yeah, right, really, so really, really uh, like curiously looking at, at LinkedIn in the next month. So let's, let's see where you end up. Uh, fingers crossed for your future. Thanks a lot. Oh, thank you so much. This is a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Alphalist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. Alphalist is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or as we say in Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.